When it comes to neuroscience in our brains, we are at the forefront of this research. And traditionally, even this research has been based on studies of men. So our understanding of the female brain and the changes that occur when a woman becomes a mother is only just starting to be explored. And today's guest dives into this research. I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness, the unknown of our world. Dr. Sarah McKay is a neuroscientist and science communicator who specialises in translating brain science into research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, women's health and well-being. In this conversation we dive into not only Sarah's interest in neuroscience for women but the changes and understanding of what happens in the brain when women become mothers. Pregnancy changes our brains but is there such a thing as a mother's instinct and how does a mother's brain change not just in pregnancy and the early years of her child but across the life cycle of her children. Sarah's latest book, Baby Brain, explores this and much, much more. Known as the person who explains the brain, please enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Sarah McKay. Dr. Sarah McKay, I'm really excited to dive into this conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. Let's start, not quite at the beginning, but I'm interested in, for you in particular, what pulled you towards the study of neuroscience? Oh, wow. So that's going all the way back to the early 90s <laughs> when I was in my youth and I was in my first year of university in New Zealand. And it's still a case now you do kind of a very broad first year that allows you to then specialise in subsequent years. So I was kind of doing this sort of medical health sciences first year. So you could go off and do physio or dentistry or sports psychology or medicine or whatever. And I was doing that and you sort of did biology, chemistry, psychology type subjects. And I was in psychology 101 and we would sit on the biology of psychology. And that was the first time in my life I had been introduced to the neurobiology of the brain mm. and neurons and synapses, connections between neurons and transmitters. And now they teach it at high school biology, like my sons are teenagers and they've learned it, but I never learned that until university. And it just blew my mind how cool it was. I was so captivated by this idea of the biology, I suppose, of human behavior. So much so that I switched universities to um, Otago University that had a brand new degree program in neuroscience. And sort of as part of that psychology lesson as well, we were recommended to read a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which is written by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And anyone who has read the book will understand why I'm mentioning it because it is so amazing. If you've never heard of it, the title is quite confusing, but Oliver Sacks was a neurologist who wrote these case studies of all of the curious kind of patients he saw in his practice who had various issues with thinking or feeling and behavior or perception based on what had gone wrong with their brain. There would be a lot of neuroscientists of my generation that were sort of inspired into the field by that book. And I did read some study that 50% of Gen X neuroscientists <laughs> say that it was that book. I was just captivated and I still am. So that was what, 1993? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just now 2023 and I still have that thrill of learning about the biology of human behavior. It's never left me and it's carried me through this really interesting career. And here I am now, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would ever write 
books about the brain, but that's just where I've ended up. It's such an interesting field. And I think even as you point out, the difference between not hearing anything to it's in high schools, that sense of understanding neuroscience, Mm. kind of the era you were talking about was very much the kind of start of unpacking it. And in a lot of ways, we are pioneering at the forefront of understanding this thing that all of us carry around, this brain in our... I'm not sure whether we we really understand it yet. I think we Mm. think we understand some parts of it. But this new research coming out every day, there was even a really cool study that a neuroscientist wrote up on Twitter that I was reading the thread last night going, oh my God, this is so cool. So, you know, I think it's such a great subject. And especially now, much more so than in the 90s, but especially now the field has moved on and starting to do research. It's really meaningful, I think, to human health and well-being. And we can sort of start to relate it back to us a little bit more than what we used to do when it was very much just sort of the biology of cells back in the 90s. But we're at, we're at a good time now. Often when we hear that term neuroscience, people go the brain, but not really sure. And sometimes it's even a question of, is it the anatomy? Is it nature versus nurture? And you have a really lovely kind of model or a way of explaining Mm. what that is called the bottom up, outside in, top down (laughs) model. Can you um, model of the brain? Help us understand that. Yeah, look, and if anyone is familiar with psychology or health sciences, they'll be familiar with the biopsychosocial model. And it's loosely inspired by that, which considers the interactions of biology and psychology and social factors on our health over the lifespan. But my little model puts the brain in the middle instead of health and the brain in the middle in quite a visual way. And so I talk about biology as in our bottom-up biology. So these are all these sort of biological or physiological determinants or inputs into the brain that influence our current state of health or our current emotional state, you know, the brain's development and ageing. And our brains really think about it receiving this constant stream of data about what's happening inside our body. And some of that we're aware of, like... If you're pregnant, you can feel the baby kicking or you've got a full bladder or you've got a sore back. And some of that we're completely unaware of. I wouldn't have a clue what the pH in my gut is or what various hormone levels are moment by moment. But these are all signaling up into our brain. And that can include also genes and our immune system, the food we've eaten, exercise we're doing. But of course, the brain is also acting back on our bodies. And that's how we kind of behave and interact with the world. And then our brains are constantly sensing the outside in world. So that's kind of what is outside of us. And it makes, the outside makes its way in through our senses, primarily because we are humans through our visual system. And a large part of the brain is devoted to vision, but also what we can hear. And then if it's close enough to us, what we can smell and touch and taste. And so what's out there, that's, I can see my dog on the floor. (laughs) It's the outside in world. I'm looking out the window. I can see the sky. I can see the sun rising and setting. Everything that happens in the outside world, we perceive, and that comes into our biology as well, you know, our social interactions. And then finally, then we've got top down, which is a bit harder to kind of conceptualise, but we can think of that as our psychology or our mind or our expectations, belief systems, language, emotions, personality, all the kind of mind aspects. And all of these factors interact with each other. So, you know, the outside in world can influence our top down thoughts which is why someone perhaps with lack of social support might be more prone to mental health disorders such as depression through social isolation or kind of bring it back to pregnancy and parenting, which is what the book is about. 
Our top-down thoughts could influence our bottom-up biology, which is why if you're a breastfeeding mother, you think about your baby and you get milk let down. Mm. So just puts the brain in the middle of, and there's no like hard and fast rules. It's just a visual framework to conceptualize. Here's the brain, what's going on? And it just gives us a way of breaking it down and making it a bit more simple. It's a, such a useful kind of framework because often we'll kind of think about, oh, it's just this or it's the coffee that I've just drunk, but it's also the <laughs> person that I've drunk the coffee with and how I feel connected to them or what else is kind of yes. going on. So I really like Absolutely. that sense of bottom up biologically, yeah. what's happening for me, have I slept last night, all of those things, outside yeah. in yeah. and top down. And I think it um, instead of like always having to say it was this one thing, we can go, hey, you know, Almost anything, you put anything in the middle of this diagram or framework, so you put, I don't know, insomnia, let's look at it from the perspective of the brain, this model, put insomnia in the middle, instead of just looking for one thing that was the cause, you know, perhaps you're not doing enough exercise, or perhaps you've got too much coffee in your system, or perhaps you're not in sync with the rising and the setting of the sun and you're getting too much artificial light in your eyes from the outside and world. Or perhaps you're actually ruminating and you've kind of got yourself in a bit of a downward spiral mentally and you try to go to sleep and you can't. Mm. So, you know, it just gives you a way of considering a lot of options without just finding one hook and hanging your hat on it and saying, that's the cause. Yeah, understanding the context, the ability mm. to kind of almost zoom out, which is really powerful when we're yeah. thinking about neuroscience. Now, if we are at the forefront of neuroscience research, we're really at the forefront of women's health and, and women's <laughs> brains inside of the research that is happening in neuroscience, particularly around pregnancy and motherhood. Your latest book, which is called Baby Brain, mm. which is your, I guess, kind of the evolution of your previous book, which is the Women's Brain book, really looking at you know some of the neuroscience and what's some of the research that's coming out. You talk about that pregnancy changes our brain. And whilst it's not always something we associate with other than maybe brain fog or baby <laughs> brain, talk to me about what are some of the maybe early things that happen within our brain, our neurochemistry, when someone falls pregnant. Yeah, so there's a couple of different ways to consider how the brain changes and the studies that have been done really rely on the, the sort of tools of analysis that we have at the moment. And sometimes science goes ahead and leaps and bounds and we get new technology to kind of help us understand. So at this stage, we're kind of limited. You know, we can't take pieces of living human brains out. So all we can do is really use brain imaging. So there's two kinds of brain imaging. There's structural brain imaging or MRI. It's like taking a photo of the brain having a look at what it looks like. And then there's fMRI, which is functional MRI, which is almost like a movie of the brain in action. And there are a couple of other ways we can look at how the brain is working. And most research is done looking before pregnancy and then after pregnancy because it is hard to kind of get ethical approval. And also mothers don't necessarily always want to put their hands up and say, I'll do this, to scan women's brains during pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So most studies that are looking at imaging the brain immediately before and after. So the first sort of study that was published came out at the very end of 2016, but it goes back to 2019 when three researchers in Spain sort of started musing over, well, what happens when a brain falls pregnant? And they learned there was nothing there, no brain imaging done on pregnancy. And so they recruited women in, scanned them before their first pregnancy, and then within a month or two after that first pregnancy. And it's really important that it was their first pregnancy because that has kind of muddled a lot of data hmm. around pregnancy and motherhood if we're looking at first-time mothers and fourth-time mothers and second-time mothers. But anyway, the, the changes that they found in these women were incredibly striking and they were involved 
Changes in the structure of grey matter of these women's brains, primarily in regions involved with social cognition and theory of mind and empathy. So those are the brain networks which read social cues from other people. What are other people thinking and feeling? What do they need? And can I interpret what is going on in this other human? And primarily we think that those changes are adaptive and that they enable the mother, once the baby has been born, to be able to perceive social cues from the baby. And a new baby really only has two ways of communicating with us because they can't use their words. They can't tell us what they need. They cry or they're kind of cute. And our brains are primed to respond by the hormones of pregnancy to those cues to respond to babies crying and to respond to baby's cuteness. And what the researchers did was then they've been able to correlate that the degree of change is related to the degree of response that the mother shows or feels towards her baby afterwards. So mothers who showed a greater change in the structure of their brains in these social cognition areas showed a greater degree of attachment and positive feelings toward their baby. And they were able to kind of interpret what their baby needed and wanted. So that was kind of the structural changes and other and, and in the years that, that since that paper has come out, those researchers have gone and explored in detail other brain regions that may have changed slightly and we see changes in regions involved with motivation and rewards. So that kind of being driven towards looking after your baby, you know, you almost become addicted to your baby, which is a very useful evolutionary adaptation. Mother Nature was very smart because it's hard work looking after a yeah. baby. <laughs> And they're not always cute and they cry a lot and they they can be quite distressing, selfish little creatures to live with, but we just kind of can't stay away. You know, we're so driven towards them and so we think that these hormones of pregnancy also make us more motivated towards caring for our babies. So they were kind of the structural changes. And then over time, we've started to look at the functional changes. So do pregnant brains or do mothers, new mothers' brains respond in different ways than um, sometimes they use the word never mothers, but that just means women who've never had a pregnancy, nulliparous. There's not really any kind of nice neutral term that's not, <laughs> not never pregnant, mm. non-mother. So forgive me if my language there sounds clumsy. And the, a really interesting study has actually come out of the Brain Imaging Centre in Monash. Some Australian researchers have compared how different regions in the brain communicate with each other. And they have found that mothers' brains, they go into this state of plasticity where they are really sort of tuned into the baby and, and able to learn very easily by experience. But they also become much more kind of flexible and responsive and adaptive and efficient. So the communication between brain regions and new mothers is actually very efficient and very adaptive and very flexible compared to non-mothers' brains, which is you know, you'd kind of like to think as well yourself that you're like flexible and adaptive and efficient. We can't always say this is how the brain functions and this is how a person behaves, but certainly how the brain works is very different after pregnancy as well. And we think largely these changes, for a while we didn't know, we're going, oh, is it pregnancy? Is mm. it the active parenting? The, the changes that we've seen through a clever series of studies that have kind of looked at hormones and looked at various you know, whether the mother's breastfed or not and whether the mother's, how the mother's delivered the babies. And they've kind of looked at every kind of aspect of pregnancy physiology and they have found that it is the hormones of the third trimester, primarily the hormone estradiol, which is one of the forms of estrogen, which 
is just like a thousandfold times higher than you see at any other point in your lifespan. That's probably what is driving these changes. So it's almost like the hormones of pregnancy don't just prepare our bodies to give birth to the baby and nurture the baby once it's born. They've actually, they're actually changing our minds to tune in to this new baby, which is really cool. And it shouldn't really be as a surprise because we see that in all the other mothers of the mammalian kingdom get better at doing what they do when their babies, you know, arrive, whether they be dolphins or sheep or mice. <laughs> um, but we've now finally got the evidence that we humans, <laughs> we adapt, our brains adapt. So interesting because my thinking when you were describing that was that, you know, what are some of the causes? Is it that our brains are kind of open and much more flexible because we're doing something we've never done before? Like is yeah, it the newness uh, of it? Absolutely. It's a steep learning curve. Yeah. And it's almost as if the brain is in this state of plasticity whereby it's really ready to learn by experience. So it's almost as if the learning curve is made a little less steep because we've gone into the state of plasticity where experience matters. We still need helpers. We still, we, you know, your brain doesn't know how to change an appy or how to interpret a cry, but it's in a state in which the interactions with the baby will reinforce those changes and will help make that process easier. It doesn't guarantee that for every woman, but by and large, that is what Mother Nature intends for all mammalian mothers. Something that kind of heightens is part of that, the what we call the nesting phase, where you talk about that oh, third yeah. trimester, that kind of sense of preparing. And some of that is cognitive, like the way we're thinking, we're, we're trying to align and trying to get some little piece of control in amongst a, a yeah. huge amount of uncertainty. Like, what do we know about nesting? Oh, I'm glad you've asked about that, actually, because there's been a bit of sort of discussion and, you know, that's been interrogated slightly because we talk about nesting in terms of, you know, it's in the what to expect when you're expecting and it, it's a bit gendered and it's perceived as this kind of women will go into this kind of crazy state of cleaning and preparing. I mean, it's also a pragmatic behaviour. Yes. You've got to prepare your home for a new arrival. Nick might need a stroller or we might need somewhere for the baby to sleep and we might need some nappies and some clothes. So, you know, we can kind of dismiss that and joke about it, but there's a pragmatic getting ready. But then there's also kind of like a bit of a weird gendered mocking of mm. this kind of craziness, the state that women find themselves in. But at the same time, if we look at the biology, we look outside humans and we look at other animals, there are various pretty stereotypical behaviours that other animals perform that we also call nesting. So birds mate, literally build nests. Rabbits which have been reasonably well studied because they have a very sort of stereotypical step-by-step process. So they dig their burrow and then they get grass or straw and line it. And then about a day before they give birth, they start plucking their own fur off their legs and their belly. And then they use the fur to line the nest. And that's under very tight hormonal control. So those rabbits go into a nesting phase, which is hormonal. So there's perhaps there is kind of a biological drive in there for some mothers, but how that plays out is... Can be very... And, and I think that this is this kind of nature-nurture question and you could almost take it to the next step. And Is it, is it Mother Nature or is the patriarchy? Maybe we'd, we have some kind of biological drive to prepare for the baby, but how that plays out may be influenced by the cultural expectations that we have around us. But, you know... 
And humans, it's always hard to tease that out. Yes. And that's the problem. Are mothers frantically decorating a nursery because we're driven to hormonally, like other mammals are driven to prepare? Or are we painting the nursery because we kind of feel like that's what a good mother does? Yeah. And it's hard to tease that. And that's the problem with humans. (laughs) And we're reading books on what to expect when we're expecting and we're told that humans nest. So there's always a little bit of a problem in there. And I guess some of the feminist literature that has gone and interrogated this kind of idea around nesting is the themes that emerge are typically around you know, they're crazy and irrational and manic and funny. Mm. That said, there are there are other studies that are, are looking less at like the, the house preparation <laughs> and more looking at the kind of the feelings that women have. And often there's this big burst of energy and we see this in other animals as well. You know, leading up to birth, it's pretty tiring. It's hard work physically. But then often there's this burst of energy that some women experience just before they go into labour. And I know I experienced that. I didn't It's only looking back, having read this literature going, I know that that happened with both of my kids. I was really restless the day I went into labour with them both. I had a real urge to get out of the house and go Mm. and do things in both situations, which doesn't seem to necessarily fit the idea that you want to withdraw and be safe and away from other people. I wanted to just, I I was really flat to get out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I I don't know. It's It's very hard when you read the literature and when you start to dig into the science to then try not personalise it and go, is that why I did this? Yeah. Is that why I did that? <laughs> or have uh, someone else I'm, tell you that, which is which is always hard as well. Yeah, um, and that's a real conundrum in this space as well because we've got this phenomenon of baby brain, this experience women have. Is it biological or is it something else? This phrase maternal instinct is another kind of, I think, interesting way to interrogate this is it purely biological is there some biological propensity that we know what to do when our baby is born or is it this word that people use to shame mothers if they don't experience it it's really interesting oh and that almost ties into your model around kind of the expectations what have we taken on board whether it's societal expectations what have we been marketed to that things kind of should look like yeah yeah But to understand, I think, some of your research and what you're uncovering is that there are hormonal kind of impacts and so that ability to actually pause and go, okay, if I can see the patriarchy or if I can see the marketing, what is it for me and then how do I tune into what do I need and what help can I get in in that moment? I think it's hard when you're in the weeds. (laughs) Like I don't know whether I had the capacity to be self-reflective when my boys were little because my boys are quite close together um they're 18 months apart 19 months apart and it was really hard in those early really hard they were easy kids they were so straightforward but it was still so difficult and I don't think I could have had the capacity to think about any of those competing influences on me then it's only kind of now look I've got distance I've got 15 years of space to look back to try and unpack that maybe if we manage some of those expectations in advance as well it would be useful too one of the things you touched on, particularly for mums, once babies are born, that connection around particularly cuteness and crying and just how mm. we start to have that deep connection. I remember even with my first son, when he cried, my husband would kind of be a little bit antsy, but it would physically hurt me. Like it was a whole different mm. kind of level. 
And he's like, oh, no, it's okay. Or, you know, he had a different way, but it felt yeah. biological. <laughs> yes, and, and, it, and it is. <laughs> I had the same experience when my oldest son had his heel prick test in the hospital. And I thought I had been empathic <laughs> to my husband's aching back and my poor dad hobbling around before he had his hips replaced. And I'd be like, oh, you poor thing, you know. But then when I remember when my son had his heel pricked, and that was the first time I'd even seen him in pain. And it was innocuous. Yeah. That said, he still screamed. And I felt like my soul had been torn from my body. I had never felt it was a biological, I'd never felt that way before in response to someone else's pain. And that is because our brains have changed. And we almost, especially in those first few days and weeks of motherhood, are in a state of real hypervigilance. So that kind of really feeling on edge, alert. Some women find it really hard to sleep. You're constantly thinking about your baby, but you don't really kind of know what to do. So, you know, you often, I remember going back home with Harry, my first son, and, you know, my heart was always racing and I felt really panicky. I thought something terrible was about to happen. And that's actually really normal and almost in a way is adaptive because especially with your first baby, you don't want to do it. It's kind of useful to be hyper alert and not just like chilled and relaxed, which you probably are with your subsequent children because you know what you're doing. But that hypervigilance that we experience is quite normal as well. And part of that is that sort of biological priming of our brain and our nervous system. Interestingly, there's the study I discuss in the book well, a couple of researchers have looked at this issue around when you are hypervigilant, what are the kind of thoughts that emerge? Mm. And these catastrophic intrusive thoughts of your baby falling down the stairs or out the window are really, really, really common that some terrible thing is going to happen to your baby or you'll hurt them. But we don't often talk about them. I was even talking to a new dad yesterday who's daughter's 17 days old and he was going oh it's kind of crazy and I said oh you know he was saying oh she's so cute but I'm just so worried about her all the time and I said you know it's pretty common Mm. to to think that they're going to fall out a window or down the stairs he said I can't think about anything else and that is so common and so normal in in fathers as well but what we see is that those intrusive catastrophic thoughts start to tail off sort of four five six seven weeks into parenting it's when they persist and they start to interfere with your ability to, you know, live your day-to-day mm. life or interfere with the care of the baby, then that's when we can start to see perhaps some clinical anxiety emerge. But again, I think if we kind of normalised no. the yeah. state of panic that we find ourselves in, I was almost too scared to go into a room that had windows. I remember sort of standing holding my baby going, I can't go out into that room that goes out onto the balcony. I thought even if I went into the room that went out into the balcony, somehow he'd fall off. And I remember another girlfriend saying to me who had a baby at the same time that she had tiles on her kitchen floor and she was sort of standing on the edge of the carpet <laughs> where the carpet met the tiles holding a baby going, well, I can't go into the kitchen. Yeah. Because <laughs> he might fall on the tiles and his head will split open. And I think that that's almost like an adaptive response. Whilst we're still learning how to keep our babies alive, we keep our babies alive. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about hormonally and our brains are open and (laughs) adaptive and flexible, then all of that totally makes sense. And I wish I had have known how that that was normal. Because I sometimes think it's so easy to pathologize motherhood. It's like a bit like adolescence. Matrescence and adolescence are very similar. When something is a bit tough or we struggle, 
or we don't know that it's completely normal, we pathologize it, we think it's some terrible thing that we need to get help for or we feel really shamed or whatever when it's probably completely normal. Yeah, the ability to talk about it and normalise it's really powerful. You mm. talk about how mothers and their, their babies or their children start to sync up, how brains almost mm. are, we're hardwired for connection and belonging. What is happening when we start to maybe have that sense of feeling like we're in sync, whether we're conscious mm-hmm. of it or not? What do we know about that? Yeah, I love this research and it's very, very new. We've always for many years understood and it's almost been kind of a cornerstone of child, infant development, child development is this idea of attachment and that, you know, a little baby attaches to their parent and we interact and we talk to them and mimic them and they'll be lying there opening and closing their mouth and we might touch their lips and, and we see these kind of really quite beautiful, precious little social interactions We start to see these kind of coordinated moments. What we see is biology and physiology also start to coordinate. So our heart rates kind of sync up and our breathing rates sync up. We use our brain and our nervous system to kind of regulate the baby's physiology. And really, they need us to regulate, especially when they're little, you know, their body temperature and their fluid input. And we need to keep them warm and dry and safe. And and a big part of that is this kind of mother-infant synchrony. But what's really cool and exciting from the perspective of brain science is that we're now starting to understand that we also see brain-to-brain synchrony or neural synchrony. And again, this is one of these findings which has emerged from you know this new technology. So for a long time, any social interaction that we could record in the brain involved, I always say someone lying in like kind of isolated captivity, you would lie, you have to lie really still in a brain scanner, you can't move. And you'll have images shown to you. You might look at videos of your baby or strangers or they might play voices or all of the interactions that you had with other people via a screen. But now we've got this technology where we can record from two or more brains at once and record sort of brainwaves using EEG. So people wear like a cap over their scalp with electrodes. And we're now starting to see, hey, when mothers and infants start to synchronize their brainwaves sort of start to synchronize and kind of do a kind of a coordinated dance together and we see that synchrony emerging between people when they've you know experienced trust or rapport two people that have known each other for a very very long time will be very well synchronized versus two strangers who may end up hitting it off and may develop you know some kind of synchrony but doesn't always start off that way and so that kind of feeling of they get me and you know we kind of understand each other as as reflected in brainwave signals and and then the research that's come out in the last year or two looking at mother infant and usually that's the dyad that's not to say there aren't lots of parents who are not the birth mother but looking to see how what kind of facilitates that because it's not as one of the researchers said to me it's not ESP We've got eye gaze and we know when people are kind of making eye contact and then looking away and they're making eye contact again. We're not always staring into each other's eyes because that's kind of weird and threatening, but that kind of making eye contact and breaking away and coming back, that facilitates brain-to-brain synchrony. But in infants and their mothers, interestingly, smell is an enormously important guide of synchrony. And I think we forget that we're mammals. (laughs) We know dogs are really like to smell each other and smell us and 
I don't know if you've got a dog, but if you've got a dog, like they know how long you've been out of the house. <laughs> if you've been away for a longer time, they're more excited when you come. They're excited if you come back after 10 minutes, but if you come back after 10 days, they'll lose their mind. And we think that dogs smell the passage of time by detecting the, because your smell lingers on after you leave the room. Wow. As your odor depletes, that's how they gauge how long you've been away. Wow. And which I think is a really cool finding in yeah. dogs, but we use smell to communicate too. Mm. So one researcher I spoke with has done the coolest research. This is done pre-COVID back in the day when everyone would shake hands. And then often after someone's shaken a hand, people will smell, smell their hand. <laughs> I don't think I've ever consciously gross. done that. Come <laughs> <laughs> we'll look at a room full of blokes and see if that happens. But she's noted that, and it's almost as if it's like this subconscious way of smelling the other person after you've shaken hands. She did this one really fascinating study where she wanted to see if emotions could be transmitted by smell. So she wanted to gather the smell of fear. So she went to a skydiving centre. She didn't do the skydiving, but she got people who were doing their first time skydive to wear little cotton pads in their armpits while they did their first skydive. And then she gathered those cotton pads, took them away, froze them, took them away to a research lab, and then got a second set of people in. And they got told, you're wearing a mask and we're looking at your breathing rate and we're looking at your galvanic skin response to measure your stress levels. Mm -hmm. But the mask was actually a surreptitious body odor transmission system yeah. so they so people were inadvertently smelling the smell of the skydivers armpit sweat and when it was the armpit sweat of the skydivers versus a neutral person people's stress response would go up so they could smell the fear in someone else amazing which is really cool. really cool and yeah and so she's that same researcher has since gone on to look to see can we not transmit just fear but can we transmit a sense of calm and safety and so she's looked at brain-to-brain -brain synchrony between babies and strangers and you know babies when they get to a certain point in development if they're interacting with a stranger they're really scared and upset but if they're interacting with a stranger and they're playing with a t-shirt that their mother has worn for a few days, they are far calmer and they quickly synchronize with the stranger. So their behavior is calm and they feel safe and secure and their brain synchronizes up with a stranger when they're playing with the mother's t-shirt. So the mother's smell is making them feel safe. It's fascinating. So, so fascinating. You know, and we, you know, there's so many kind of ways that we can think about, you know, if you send a baby off to daycare for the first time, maybe we should be sending them off with, you know, our T-shirt. <laughs> we do that with puppies when we adopt them. Yes, yeah. What's a way to retain that yeah. smell and how powerful yeah. that is? I mean, we know it's so powerful from yeah. a memory perspective, right? You can smell a smell that you haven't smelt for years and it'll take you right back. Oh, and it just... Yeah, I manipulated my children with the smell of vanilla and baking for years. <laughs> I used to bake heaps when they were small and I put loads of vanilla in everything because I always want them to associate that smell with me. Clever. <laughs> and feeling warm and loved and safe. Yes, <laughs> clever. So that interesting, yeah, connection, that yeah. sense of being in sync. We've talked about infants and newborns and that mm. kind of connection, but parenting, as you say, in all forms, whether you're the birth mother or not or the birth parent, or not it continues for a lifetime does that sense of being in sync continue from what we know yeah yeah interestingly it does so another research that's come out of Israel is they've had this amazing kind of cohort of families they've been studying and they first started studying the mother and infant when they were in the maternity hospital and those children are now in their 20s and they have looked to see what are these patterns of synchrony and engagement like 
And we could have one mum with three children and she'll have a very distinct pattern of synchrony kind of a signature with each child and that carries through into adulthood so even if you look at you know the child's now in their 20s and then that predicts the kind of the quality of attachment that that adult child will then have with their children so we can kind of start to see how parenting styles transmit from generation to generation as well. Is that where some of the intergenerational experiences, trauma, those sorts of things can be passed down yeah. through genes or through brain development? Is there much research yeah, in that so field? Yeah, so they've looked at that research that has been done in Israel and they've looked at families that have lived, you know, kind of in war zones and, and they've looked to see how do the children react based on how their parents kind of cope. So we learn coping skills. The research on intergenerational transmission of trauma when a trauma occurs in a parent before they've conceived the child, there's kind of a few gaps in the research there because essentially we would have to have a trauma that somehow then changed the gametes, so changed the DNA of the sperm or the DNA of the egg. Your eggs develop when you're still in utero Mm. inside your mother. Um, So it would somehow have to change the egg or the sperm and then that child that grew from the egg and the sperm, that pattern would then have to be somehow have to roll out in terms of that child's nervous system development and then their behaviours. So that's a bigger stretch. There's perhaps a case to be made for it in some instances, but it's probably more likely that it's transmitted through the (laughs) behaviour. We have more evidence yeah. for that. I'm not saying intergenerational trauma transmission via genes is, you know, that genetic or epigenetic transmission is not true. Just that there's a few more gaps mm. in our knowledge as to the mechanism by which that happens. Whereas the transmission of behaviour or coping strategies or whatever is pretty well established. Not- but I don't really talk about that in the book. That's no, just thinking. Other- yeah, no, it's really interesting in terms of that in sync mm. and over a sense of mm. a lifetime come back to that kind of period of newborn or a young infant uh, and where we Mm. talked about that kind of model of understanding neuroscience. There's so much in terms of Mm. just lifestyle and activities and things that we're doing. Lack of sleep Mm. has a massive impact on our brain. One of the things I'm hearing from you, Sarah, is is how do we normalise just our own experiences? (laughs) And it totally makes sense in the context of what's going on, but also understanding what might be going on biologically and in our kind of neuroscience Mm. what impact does sleep loss or I guess disruption to sleep have on Mm. a new mother's brain and what other kind of things parents or new mums can be kind on themselves in that period from a you know Mm. kind of health and well-being perspective yeah I mean it's pretty unavoidable because these new babies don't have a sleep-wake cycle yet Especially if you're breastfeeding them, they need to be fed multiple times during the night. So it is hard. (laughs) And I don't think we're necessarily protected against it in any way by the fact that we've given birth. In fact, we're probably almost starting on the back foot because giving birth is really hard work. Recovering from pregnancy is really hard work. And then suddenly the way that many of us recover, which is by deep restorative sleep, is that that is disrupted too. So There's kind of no way around that, unfortunately, and it doesn't help. And that is one of the reasons why we're more vulnerable to mental health issues. Although the sort of the strongest kind of risk factor around mental health issues, particularly postnatal depression, is social support. 
And that said, I suppose social support is really one of the best ways that we can help with that. I did speak to a, re- a, a women's health psychiatrist about this issue because she published a paper and didn't necessarily go down well in all kinds of quarters, but this idea that what we really need to do is we need to be calling on the cavalry and we need to be, to protect mental health, we really need to be protecting sleep or at least supporting sleep. And we need to be looking for ways in which we can help women find or new parents find ways in which they can facilitate sleep as much as possible. Because she said if it was any other point in the lifespan, if sleep was a massive issue, there was enormous sleep deprivation, you wouldn't really be able to build other health and yeah. well-being you know, strategies on top of that. And so what she does is she gets families in to her clinic and she gets everyone to kind of do an hour by hour kind of mapping of their day. Like where are the opportunities for sleep? Is there a time when one person can sleep and the other person can't? Can we kind of call in the cavalry and work in shifts here? And there's often, you know, discussions about if you're a new mum, should dad get up with you every time you breastfeed at night or should you take it in turns? Obviously the fathers can't breastfeed. And especially in those first few weeks when breastfeeding is being established in this research, you know, she's not talking about the first few weeks when you're establishing breastfeeding, but down the track, if you've got a baby who has disrupted sleep for a couple of years, you know, what are you going to do? And I know me and my husband kind of took this on because I really, really love sleep and don't function very well without it. And my boys were really easy. As I said, breastfeeding was, it was straightforward and they also happily took a bottle. So my husband just did the shift until midnight or 1am. And then if the baby woke after then, then I went through until 6am. They might only wait once at that point. And I just used to go to bed really early. And what we know about our sleep cycles is that the deep restorative sleep that we get is within the first two or three hours of the night. And so if we can in some way protect Mm. that, I'd go to bed happily at 7, 7.30, fall asleep. My husband would do a bottle feed if there was a need for it. And then once midnight came, he'd switch off. (laughs) And if the baby woke after that time, then I would get up and then he would get his deep Mm. restorative sleep. And if you've ever been woken by a baby and you've only been asleep for about an hour or two, you know, it's like trying to swim your way through treacle to wake up. Whereas if you're woken after you've had deep restorative sleep for two or three hours, it's a bit easier to wake up and a bit easier to go to sleep. It's not as disruptive in the second half of your sleep cycles as it is in the first. So I think what that requires family members and other parents to kind of do their share, to kind of come in and help out. And I don't see any point in both parents being sleep deprived at the same time. It's a bit hard when the babies are brand new. And, you know, this research says call in the cavalry. Mm. We've just got to kind of change our ways of, of, of thinking around that. ability that. to go, yeah, it takes a village and let's look at how this will work for, before we jumped onto yeah. the mic and hit record, we were talking about the ecosystem of a family and whatever that looks like for you. But yeah. actually then looking at that with a calendar or with a diary and going, how does yeah, that like, ecosystem like work? Let's map mm. it out. Like everyone's biology interacts with everyone else's biology. And this is why Mother Nature didn't intend us to parent alone. Women were never meant to be parenting all by themselves and coping all alone. We've always had helpers. You know, humans are alloparenting creatures. So that means that we're meant to have multiple caregivers for a baby. And, you know, fathers respond biologically to infant caring. We respond biologically to each other. Everyone in the ecosystem, you know, is synchronized. Our biology influences each other. And that's always the intention. We were always meant to have helpers. 
you know, to safeguard our mental health and to interact with us and to teach us. So we would learn by experience. We talk about maternal instinct, but we all have to learn from our mothers and our sisters and our aunts. And we've always had people there providing for us and protecting for us, cooking food, entertaining toddlers. That's kind of how we evolved. And these these sort of enormous changes we see in the social brain during pregnancy facilitate that. And in the absence of that, it's hardly a surprise mm. that we struggle. So interesting, this research. But I want to jump to kind of that midlife. And you talk about there being traces <laughs> of childbirth remaining in the brains <laughs> of midlife women. That's the, that's the title of the paper. It's quite provocative, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So there's really, as I say, a lot of the research that emerges comes about through advances in, you know, kind of technology and, and big data, these kind of biobanks that we're gathering with all of this information about hundreds of thousands of humans is revealing all kinds of really cool and curious findings. So I talked about the structural changes that we see and the functional changes that we see during pregnancy. Well, researchers have gone in and looked at this biobank data and kind of run analyses on, you can like get 100,000 people and look to see, you know, what does the brain of a 50-year-old woman look like and what does the brain of an 80-year-old woman or a man look like? And when we kind of pull together all these hundreds of thousands of people, we can see that the brains of women who have experienced motherhood are slightly younger looking than the brains of women who don't. Now, does motherhood make you younger? Well, it's only about, it's about six months younger. And because we're talking about averages of hundreds of thousands of people here, we can kind of get down to that level of detail. But certainly what that big data seems to be showing is that these pregnancy and parenting induced changes in the brain last throughout the lifespan we can see in midlife but we can also see in women in their 70s and 80s we can detect whether those brains experienced parenting the question there's a couple of kind of pieces to this one is, is was it the pregnancies or was it the fact that these women could have been mothers for decades and that's a very cognitively engaging and enriching experience is that kind of somehow built resilience to aging in and it's hard to tease mm. that out we can look at the brains of the fathers of men to see whether they had children or not but it's very very variable for men because if you've had a biological pregnancy and cared for that baby all women have experienced well, the mothers that have given birth of pregnancy is kind of unavoidable, but fathering is very variable. Mm. <laughs> you know, men could be there for conception only and, or they could be the primary caregiver. So we see enormous variability in the brains of men, which probably reflects the enormous variability of engagement they had with fatherhood. Whereas, what's the joke? You never, No mother ever has a second secret family. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty hot. We all know. Pretty all-encompassing. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it's easier to see the differences in, in the women. Still, again, it's hard to, if we look at the fathers, it's still hard to tease it out because the fathers are super variable. But what is really interesting is once we see women who've had more than four children, that resilience to ageing, those more youthful looking brains, that disappears. And we think because if you have more than four children, the stress <laughs> of the whole thing <laughs> perhaps <laughs> averages out, <laughs> removes the effect of youth. So the queen was probably on, you know, she had four children. She was also very healthy and wealthy and had all of the right resources in place, born in the right postcode. You know, she probably ticked all the boxes mm. for 
awesome. well-being and longevity. She didn't retire. She did all of the right things, kind of an example of a mother who aged well. So, yeah, it's interesting. We used to kind of think if we had 10 women and 10 men and we scanned their brains, we couldn't really see the differences between them. But when you get 100,000 women and 100,000 men, we can start to see tiny little differences kind of adding up. And with big data is revealing this really cool information. That said, there is a ton of brain imaging data out there that has never recorded reproductive status of the woman of the brain that's been scanned. We have way more data out there on left and right-handedness than we do on prior reproductive experience. Yeah, so a lot of opportunity for (laughs) more research. So much More research and study. But, but, you know, the... Yeah, the biobank data is pretty good, but whether you had pregnancies and raised children is a pretty reliable self-report. So, I mean, it's Um, interesting that four is the tipping point. Like, I've got two kids, I reckon two is probably... But it's, you know, that's where... I used to think four or five, it'd be fun, the chaos will be awesome. And then I realised after one child, I was like, I don't actually like chaos. I don't like the chaos. I'm like having another one straight away. I'm just going to get it over and done. And, uh, and then the younger brain, again, I wonder if that's just because I'm just trying to keep up with the lingo of a couple of teenagers. At the moment. Absolutely. We're always, we're always up-levelling. I've got teenage sons as well. It's a real psychological kind of game and each stage of parenting there's something new to learn there's a new kind of way of being there's new emotions you have to self-regulate there's new social cues to read absence of social cues perhaps to interpret especially in teenagers. So it's a very cognitively enriching experience raising children. So that's probably part of that resilience. But I think we can't move away from during pregnancy, we have these enormous doses of hormones. We constantly, when we consider hormones and reproductive experience and brains, it's negative, it's dysfunction, it's baby brain, it's all the things that go wrong. We're constantly assuming that hormones are going to do something terrible to our minds. But estrogen is a cognitive enhancer. We know that. That's very clear. It's clear in the rest of the animal kingdom. So the impact of estrogen on women's health long term is we're sort of starting to see that play out now. And that's probably a contributor to these younger looking brains, as we say. This book, Baby Brain, we've probably just scratched the surface on a couple of the topics that you dive into in the book. Mm. In a quick kind of summary, for someone who might be interested in reading it, what's the kind of main key thing that you would love people to walk away from in terms of diving into this book? I mean, I, I kind of jokingly say I hope baby brain changes people's minds about baby brain. And we didn't even, we haven't even really talked about this kind of colloquial description. I'll mm. try and summarize this really quickly that it's almost as if pregnancy and motherhood is synonymous with cognitive decline and dysfunction and emotional instability. And that's a message we've absorbed our whole lives. It's in the What to Expect books. A lot of women experience that, but I think what is really interesting and useful to understand about the cognitive science that has been done is that we're not detecting global cognitive decline in mothers. We're not getting women who say, I'm a bit forgetful, I've lost, I put my keys in the fridge, or that they always give these Mm. same examples. I once forgot something one time, therefore I had baby brain. When we're bringing these women in, we're not detecting cognitive dysfunction or decline. Sometimes in the third trimester, we can detect a one-point drop, two-point drop in a test of numerical recall or something. But studies also are detecting enhancement that same point in time, which no one ever talks about. So I think we've got this objective measures which are saying, hey, we're not detecting cognitive decline. That is a really good thing. This is a good news story. 
you know, where's this, what's sort of sitting in the middle to explain this paradox? And it goes back to this idea of the emotional labor, the mental load of motherhood, the lack of social support. Neuroscientists are now sort of saying, we're not really dealing with a neurological Mm. phenomenon here. I think what we're dealing with is a social cultural phenomenon, whereas baby brain is almost a shorthand phrase for women saying, I just can't do it all. You know, there is so much going on when your attention is focused in on the baby. You're not going to remember absolutely everything. And it quite suits society, let me say, to say, oh, the super mum who can do everything. And then if she drops one little ball, leaves her keys somewhere once, it's okay because she can just blame her cognitive dysfunction. (laughs) It suits everyone else because then no one else has to do anything to help. But I think what is happening here is we have this expectation we've absorbed about brain dysfunction and motherhood. Like we drop the ball one time, we go, oh, well, it's me and my brain, when actually it's probably a symptom of trying to do it all and not being able to. And what we really need is these women with these pro-social brains, well, they're primed for social interaction. And if you don't have that, well, it's hardly a surprise that things might not feel like they're going too too great. Society can step in, find a way to kind of ask for help. Really fascinating research and yeah. conversation that you're bringing. Sarah, and I've loved this conversation. As one final question, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. If we put it in the context of mothers or parenting, what does that mean to you to live a standout life for a parent? A standout life? Gosh, for me as a mum, you know, I just kind of neuroscience everything these Perfect. days. What neuroscience has given me, the greatest gift as a mother, is not so much all of this baby brain stuff, but I think it's now having teenagers and understanding that so many of the things that they do and we do in our responses are just so developmentally normal. And it's just given me the ability to almost sort of stand back. (laughs) Is standing back the same as standing out? (laughs) Stand back and it's almost like I'm watching this nature documentary and I'm just watching these men. I've like got this six foot tall 15 year old who was this once this tiny little baby in my arms. He's always a big baby though. (laughs) I'm just watching him turn into this man. Maybe all these years of effort I've put in have finally paid off. But for me, it's not about standing out. It's standing back and just kind of watching and observing these amazing men emerge. And it's quite It's the fate of all mammalian mothers, you know, they make their way out into the world. But for me, it's about standing back and like trusting that I did the work and hopefully they'll get it right. Thank you, Sarah. I'm I'm up for that. Developmentally, this is where we're at and it's totally okay and it makes sense. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then let's keep the conversation going. The main place that I hang out is on Instagram at Allie Hill, A-L-I-H-I-L-L. One of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review Standout Life Podcast on whatever platform you are listening to. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out. And if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of, then please share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in, for your ongoing support and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill.